You're listening to an Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting earlier today. The pace of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number economy. of Fed officials. The shadow banking system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Hello, my name is Chris Girardi. I am a financial economist at the Atlanta Fed, and I am very happy to be joined by Mani Majori, the chief strategist and chief investment officer at TradeWorks, a financial technology company that is based in Red Bank, New Jersey, which specializes in high-frequency trading. Uh, Mani, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Chris. Can you uh, define for our audience high-frequency trading in sort of basic terms? Sure. If you kind of look online, you're going to find things like computerized trading using uh, proprietary algorithms. You're going to find things like executing a large order uh, by a computerized algorithm, by splitting that order into like, you know, smaller pieces and executing them according to some schedule, typical VWAP or, you know, some other format of of, uh, getting a position in a security. And and the second type is, is really not executing a set order, but, you know, you're looking for other opportunities in the market, you know, sort of more of what, what a proprietary trading firm does. The way I think about it is that high-frequency trading is just sort of the logical, disruptive evolution of what was open outcry. And at the end of the day, these opportunities that these proprietary traders are really looking at arise by providing liquidity through a warehousing of risk between buyers and sellers. So I'd like to emphasize that there's really nothing new about that particular function. So whether you're a specialist in a stock on the on the exchange floor, or you're a local in a futures pit, basically the function is take the other side of a trade and hold it in hopes of getting out at a better price and use all the information at hand to make the most competitive price on both ends. And that's the service you're providing to the market. The thing about high frequency is you know that that kind of infers a very short holding period. And that's that's the that's one of the the big things that that come into people's minds, and the reason for that is it just reflects the average time it takes to match a buyer and a seller, and in, in, in predominantly what's the U.S. equities market. And you know, by comparison, like the real estate market is a low frequency market, you know, and and, and so right. characteristics are extremely high transaction costs, the the need to locate a a buyer if you're a homeowner, you know, to get liquidity and and just you know all the all the all the supply and demand issues bubbles and crashes and things like that happen in in, in those markets just as just as well as high frequency and i think it's more a function of the concept of warehousing risk in, in you know in our markets excellent excellent can you give us a little bit of uh maybe some background about high frequency trading in terms of you know how it started what what was the technological innovations that kind of made it possible sure so High-frequency trading arose from three primary simultaneous happenings. One of them was, as you mentioned, advances in technology. And basically, for the first time, it was actually possible to meticulously record you know, every meaningful atomic action associated with executing a stock. And that's kind of where it started. And that led to, you know, great efficiencies to be gained in terms of being able to assimilate lots of information uh, into a trading decision. So you went from a scenario where you're a specialist and, and your job is really to understand the, the micro supply and demand forces that are governing that particular name or set of names that you're responsible in to being able to do that 
in the context of lots and lots of names and being able to leverage the fact that we understand that a lot of these securities are, are subject to a lot of the same uh, forces of risk underneath. So by being able to develop uh, strategies that were able to very efficiently offset and neutralize volatile risk factors. So that's that's where technology helped us because it allowed us to get access to the data very, very quickly, very efficiently, and, and very impartially. But that, that alone wouldn't have been enough. It, it came along with uh, major changes in regulation. And primarily, the, the way I like to think about the changes in regulation is, is that there was a, a sense of if somebody has a better price out there, our intent is going to be to honor that better price, provided they meet cer- certain minimal requirements you know, that, that promote stability. And then finally, we, we just had market conditions that were just very ripe for, for the proliferation of this type of trading. And what I mean by that is we had an unprecedented demand for liquidity on the tail end of the banking crisis. We had a very underbuilt supply of liquidity following years of you know, relatively low volatility and banks that were capital constrained. So you had you know, very low supply and, and very high demand. And so the price of liquidity as, as a commodity was, was very high. So it did massively favor firms that had ventured into this more efficient way of providing that service. And, and hence, it became a major force in the markets. So HFT is obviously uh, proven to be a pretty lucrative, profitable business. From a social standpoint, though, can you speak a little bit about the benefits to society of high-frequency high trading? I mean, high-frequency trading has, has often gotten knocked in the press, in the pop- popular press. But at least from an economist standpoint, economic standpoint, there is an argument that it makes markets more efficient and more liquid. It provides more liquidity to the market. What's your view? Yeah, I think that at its core, technology made it possible to efficiently access orders of magnitude more information about stocks and securities. So that allowed you to build significantly more competitive pricing models for those securities. And the result of that was a massive collapse of bid offer spreads, helped by the fact that the minimum tick increment was lowered through regulation and 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 whatnot. But in that sense, it's it's made markets significantly more liquid. I think that it's also promoted a more transparent paradigm than we had before. And that doesn't mean that every order is scrutinized because maybe there are just too many for the system we built for today to be able to go through and, and methodically you know, characterize. But the fact is that all that information is there and can be studied now or years from now. And, and that's something that we never had before. So ultimately, I think that leads us to, you know, a much more efficient and and better market in the future. So the the flip side of that is that there are some potential costs to HFT. And one of them is that it could potentially contribute to additional financial instability. By making episodes like the flash crash in 2010 and the recent August 2015 stock market plunge much more likely... Do you believe this view uh, has any merit? And would you be worried about, about something like that in the future? First of all, um, I believe it's pretty widely accepted at this point that the flash crash arose from a fat-fingered error. So while there was some electronic going on there, it wasn't really necessarily an algorithm as much as a system that we hadn't fully understood yet and hadn't 
uh, built adequate safeguards around. Okay. Having said that, the current state of markets is that they, they've become so connected and technology has allowed them to become so much more connected that even in the state of an unbelievable shock. And, and I think that, you know, a trade that was the size of the trade that set off the flash crash should, would never have, you know, been allowed in, in a trading floor dominated by humans. But the fact that it was there, um, the fact that that risk was so quickly taken into all these other neighboring assets and, you know, starting out with, you know, all the different equities, but then, then moving into all different types of risk factors. And, and so it's like dropping a pebble into a pond, you know, the, the, the ripples go out, but if the pond is big enough, that, that doesn't result in a tsunami for anyone, right? Like it, eventually that energy dissipates. And, and so in my opinion, you know, the, the availability of all these algorithms and their, you know, intense search for, coming up with profitable trades led to a dampening of these types of effects rather than uh, interesting. Rather so, than, rather so you're than saying it actually, it, it actually probably went the other way in the sense yeah. of And we see this in, we, we okay. look at like individual stocks trading and we see this in individual stocks because people like to use the word flash crash, but, but on any given day, you're going to be able to find a stock that, that drops by a lot or goes up by a lot. Sometimes that's, you know, in response to news, but sometimes that's just in response to just a big investor deciding to change their preference. And so um, when you see that, you know, and, and you look at sort of how much liquidity is actually in the order book and, and where the order book f uh, finishes after sort of the, the perturbation has dissipated, what we usually find is that the price impact is, is smaller than what we would have expected to see if there were no algorithms laying off that risk to other correlated names. If you think about it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like, like basically what the algorithm does is it says, okay, this stock is plummeting in price or, or, or soaring in price, and I can't figure out any reason why that is. So I'm going to offset this risk onto things that are almost the same. Right. Right. And so effectively, that's a really, really powerful way to warehouse risk. And so I think that the benefits of that do, do pretty routinely materialize themselves in, in sort of a dampening of volatility. So the, the share of U.S. stock trades uh, accounted for by high-frequency trading has increased uh, fairly dramatically over, over the past decade to more than 50% by many accounts. Do you think there's a, satur a saturation point whereby the benefits of high-frequency trading to financial markets maybe begin to decline? Yes. Do you think we've reached that point, I guess? Here are some things I look at that make me think that we've reached that point. I think that the benefits of an innovation start to decline when the new incumbents pursue entrenchment strategies designed to discourage newcomers from entering the arena. So prior to turning on these mics, we were talking about speed and how we went from piecing together existing fiber routes you know, to digging trenches across the country to lay straight fiber to you know, now sending signals through microwave towers and, and laying new transatlantic cables and, and doing, doing these, you know, very, very expensive technological investments. And w when you look at that, you know, it, it makes sense if you're a leader in, the, in that business because you're definitely, you definitely want to build a moat around your business. There's, that, that's understandable. But if you look at it from the perspective of society, right, like that's a tremendous amount of capital that's being invested by a lot of places. In my view, I mean, like maybe that would be better spent making a more competitive price as opposed to spending it on speed so that you're first in line when your opportunity arises. I see. 
So you feel like the cost of entering the HFT business has now become so great that you're a little bit afraid that there might be some monopoly. Uh, the, the the industry is 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 maybe becoming less competitive, and that's well. There's two competing forces, right? Like the technology itself becomes commoditized through time. So having a tier two system is a lot cheaper now than it used to be. Okay. Um, and tier two is a lot closer than tier one, right? But if you're solidly entrenched in tier one, then you have a very, very clear budget that's coming from the revenue that you're creating from this advantage that you have that, that, that goes back into sustaining that advantage. And so uh, my view on that is that to the extent that you know that's going on, that's a sign of, that, that feels like, like waste. There's other, I mean, there's other signs of that outside of what people are spending on technology. If you look at any exchange, they're going to offer tiers uh, to the biggest participants. So there's a lot of reasons that, that are stated for that, but, but here's, here's an economic one, which is if you're in the business of being an exchange, you make money off of transactions. So you're in a position where you encourage your biggest customers to focus on doing the maximum amount of transactions. If you're the biggest customer, by virtue of doing so, you're in artificially increasing the cost that a newcomer would have to pay, right? And so by doing more volume and, and, and perhaps printing trades that you might not otherwise have any reason to print, you're solidifying an advantage, you know? And then, and then the, the, the third thing is, is that data costs are getting more and more and more expensive. So I think that the exchanges are finding that like, they're finding more and more quote unquote premium products that, that are a must have if you wanna be on tier one. Um, and so you see those costs escalating as well. So it feels to me like whenever, and I'm not the economist, but when everyone's on the same footing, the best idea wins. And so uh, people focus on creating the best idea and that leads to lots of good ideas and that leads to everyone's benefit. But when people start to focus on solidifying a particular advantage, then you're heading into you know a two-tiered market where there's an inside group and an outside group. And, and for what it's worth, I mean, that's how stock exchanges were hundreds of years ago. Right. Um, well, 100 years ago and before HFT. And it looks like it's just it, it is our natural tendency to try to build a moat around our castles. Sure. And, and so there is a danger that we could head towards that direction again. As HFT technology becomes more widespread and the cost of acquiring greater and greater speed becomes higher. Do you think that this is going to adversely affect HFT profits? And do you see this driving more HFT firms out of business? And if so, like how is a firm like Tradeworks, for example, going to adapt? So our strategy is to try to find the things about the market that are very stable and then try to be the best at them. So for us, um, that's alpha. Okay. For us, that's like, let's come up with the absolute best pricing model and assume that, you know, the market's going to head towards some direction like that. But that's also talking our book because that, that, that is what I believe is our core competence. Uh, we don't have the same sort of engineering budget, billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars that, that can go into muscle, right? So, so we, have to, we have to kind of focus on other elements of what we're looking at. But the one thing that's pretty interesting is that the universe gave us a speed limit. So, you know, uh, that's the speed of light and that's, that's how fast you can transact and that's the speed limit everyone knows about. There's another speed limit, which is the speed at which exchanges are able to assimilate all this data. It, it took me a while to realize that, that it may not be a fully deterministic system given how many different, if you think about 
like NASDAQ generates a billion records a day that they print. And there's other records that they don't even print, um, you know, that, that are also, you know, pretty big. And so if you think about the entire world wants to do something in the U.S. equity market and it, and it goes through one of these like 12 exchanges and, and the amount of uh, machinery that's in between the decision to, you know, buy or sell a security and then to the point where it gets matched, even if you optimize and, and believe me, we have, I mean, we understand elements of hardware in how processors work that, that I just, I never even thought about, you know, uh, but, but we do understand that, but there's, there's a uh, part of that, which is non-deterministic. And once you break into a certain level of, of the speed, then you can't predict that you're always going to be first unless you have a, a significant advantage. So innovation does get out. And so people do get to access it. And there is a first mover advantage, but but the thing is that there is a compression. And so we, we, we're not at the speed of light yet, but we're inside of perfectly predictable in. exchange technology. So so there's a probability distribution governing, you know, if, if I send my order in at the same time as you send your order in, who's going to win that trade? Even if we go down to understanding everything we know about the There's still the some randomization yeah. that's, that's going on. All right, let's uh, maybe wrap it up with one more one more question. I'm curious to to get your take about what role, if any, you see in in terms of regulation, and and do you, do you think there is is room for regulation? Is it necessary? And if so, you know what what kind of form would you like to see it take? Sure, I'm a huge huge proponent of data driven decision making. I think that that hasn't always been possible in the past because how do you gather that much data from an open outcry pit? How do you even quantify all the observables? But now we have data. Um, so we see things like the tick size pilot that the SEC is planning to do in October, where you can actually ask the question, what, you know, what is going to lead to the best trading experience? I mean, in some, in some ways, the reason why we have 60 different dark pools is, is a reflection of that as well, which is that you know, different investors have different preferences for you know, how they want to meet each other in the marketplace. And sure. uh, we have Reg ATS, which sort of says basically, you could try things because we want you to innovate. And so uh, you know, we do see that continuing as well. All right. Well, that wraps it up. Thank you very much, Mani, for joining us here today and giving us some very unique perspective and insight about the, the high-frequency trading business. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure, and this conference is actually really, really interesting, and I'm really, really happy that I came. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.